You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. Thanks, Sam. We got in um, Friday morning, and I, I I don't actually remember sleeping last night. You know, you know, there are moments where you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for the last hour I may have been asleep. There was no such time. I was just awake. I think most of the night. But here we here we are. That's my disclaimer. Um, just in case there's uh, anything goes wrong tonight, there we'll put it down to to jet lag. Well, we were um, uh, a team. Uh, Sam mentioned a few of them before. Um, in Greece, and we're handing out these bags. I think we've held these up for you before, but the idea is that um, in Greece, of course, as you, as you know, the uh, official church is the Greek Orthodox Church, but you know, over the last few decades, it has not been particularly encouraged to read the scriptures for yourself. It's only since 1989 that um, the Bible has been translated, can you believe it, into modern Greek. And so these, these beautiful hardcover New Testaments is basically what what we've been handing out and hanging on the doors of various houses. And not only was it, um, not only was it well received this year, but the, uh, the um, uh, heresy commission of the Greek Orthodox Church actually came out um, on their website, and although they still consider Hellenic ministries to be a heresy or a heretical organization, um, actually commended... Um, the, the Bible that they were handing out to uh, various people. They said it is a good translation, which they ought to because there's four of their archbishops on the translation committee and one evangelical. But uh, they actually said this is a good translation. You should read it. It would be good for you. That is a first ever. That is a first ever. So that was phenomenal. And uh, so there was much, much excitement about that. The one millionth Bible um, was handed out. Uh, this this particular OJ, yeah, that was pretty exciting, um, and uh, and you know it did feel just a little bit like something shifted um, when that uh, when that happened. Of course, we don't know who exactly um, handed out that bio. I, personally, I think it may have been me, um, but um, uh, but it but it did feel like something shifted as as in I don't know. It was a very, very special time anyway. It was a smaller team, I think uh, just slightly under 300 people instead of, I think, 400 last year. And yet, remarkably, more Bibles were handed out. Um, isn't that amazing? So, so it was such a privilege to be a part of that project and to, of course, go with a, with a team from um, EBC here and to, and to put the, the Word of God into uh, people's hands. So we, we went to um, a number of towns and villages. Somebody added up the kilometers and uh, of the oh, 60, 70 cars that went out every day, you know, filled with Bibles and filled with people. And uh, worked out that if we put all of those kilometers together, um, I think Sam may have said it before, we would have gone around the globe once. Having done that now for a number of years, nearly a decade, and thinking about uh, that, um, uh, people on Operation Joshua would have gone, driven around the globe 13 times. And you know, there has been some minor accidents, but there has never been um, any major or serious um, uh, uh, injury. Uh, to, to anyone, which we just praise God for. I, I personally think um, that is an absolute miracle, having driven driven on the roads there uh, in Greece. Uh, you know, as we went to to various towns and in villages, um, I, I felt God speaking to me in a number of different ways. I, I felt very very much drawn to to that little notation in. 
the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus um, as he was going through towns and villages too and just commenting on the, on the harvest. And, and I guess I reflected on that quite a, quite a bit and wanted to just talk to you a little bit tonight uh, about that. For me, I, I, I do find um, a trip such as this just reconnects me with the, the breadth of the harvest. Just, wow. Um, how many how many souls there are, and uh, just thinking even about our our flight. You know, sometimes you know if you're swimming swimming in a body of water, you're very aware of of the water that you're in. Particularly in Australia, we're very very aware, aren't we? You know, <laughs> what else is down there? Um, actually, in in Greece, it's 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 quite it's it's quite relaxing. There are no at least in the Aegean, there are no sharks and and nasties. It was uh, you can you know I think well, you can pick the Australians though. We're still nervous. We're, we're still looking all around us. But um, but the truth is, um, you know, you you can be very aware of your immediate surroundings, but but sometimes you get to have that 30,000-foot view as well, and you just get to see how vast the ocean is. And, and sometimes a mission trip such as this, I, I think it helps you just get your head around the breadth of um, the mission that, that God has, has called us to. Even just thinking about if you follow our, our plane, plane flight, just the, the coastal areas, the countries that you pass from Australia to, to Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, Singapore, um, Malaysia, going up around there, Thailand, Myanmar, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, tucked away there as well, Iran, um, going down to Oman, um, UAE, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, across to uh, Egypt there, and then back, back up around Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, um, Syria, uh, around to Turkey, and then Bulgaria, and then finally to Greece. Just, that's just the coastal, coastal areas of, of a trip from Australia to Greece that you're going to pass. And really, what you're passing is you just look you know, uh, most of the time, if you, if you look at the little flight plan, it's just water, of course, but, but it really represents a sea of souls. Uh, there, there's a very, very moving moment. I don't know who's seen the film Sully. Um, it's uh, the story of um, the pilot who heroically landed um, a plane that was in distress in the Hudson River. And, uh, and because of his efforts, was able to save everybody on board. But in the movie, there's this very, very moving moment where they're rescued, the ferries have them, and, and people are asking the captain, whose, whose nickname was Sully, asking him all of these, these questions and that sort of thing. But he's distracted for a moment because he's still in captain mode, and he just wants to know one thing. What's the number? He's got the manifest from the plane of how many people and was on his plane. But, but as a good captain, he's still feeling responsible for every soul on board that plane. And he's asking the question, what's the number? How many people are there? And people are looking, oh, we haven't got the number. What's the number? I want to know the number. And almost in, in desperation, feeling responsible for the souls aboard that plane, he wants to know that everybody is safe, everybody is well. It's, a, it's an interesting name, isn't it, for a captain of a ship or a captain of a plane to talk about the souls on board. But it's a lovely term that refers to our humanity, our true humanity, and that we are more than just a physical being. We are a spiritual being that belongs to, to God, and he longs for all of us to be saved. And so as we flew across that sea of souls, as it, as it were, I, I got a little bit of a sense once more just for the breadth of the harvest, this incredible mission that God is on and that he calls us to, to join him on as well. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and turn, 
turn with me if you like. This first slide um, has the, goes to verse 58. That's incorrect, just 38. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Read it together, this, this little, little moment here, just a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, exactly what we were doing in Greece, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Lord Jesus, as we look at this passage again, would, would we reconnect with your heart? Would we see what you see? Would we have such a, a sense of concern and compassion for those who are lost, who yet do not yet have a deep hope within them. That can only come through the saving grace found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we share your heart and deep concern tonight. For those who are lost, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. We were on one occasion um, moving from an island to the mainland and, and uh, from the island of Thassos, the little, little known island of Thassos. And um, on this occasion, we were taking a ferry. It was a fairly large ferry. And uh, we'd all actually found our seats and I said to Bron, oh, I've got to go see this. It's um, watching the ferry get loaded and the absolute chaos that it is is better than any reality TV show you could, you could find. So I headed to the, to the back window where I could see them loading them on. And there were about six, six bays, if you were, that go 20 cars deep. And there were trucks coming on and, and cars with caravans, buses. And, and I had never seen a ferry um, so full as this one. The huge queues, and they were just piling up, and, and they filled every bay, and they filled it as, as deep as it was wide. It was, it was quite incredible. And um, as, as it filled up, I, um, and the, uh, the back lifted up, and, and off we went. We, um, I returned to, to where Bron was sitting, and, and the, the whole room upstairs, you know, internally was a buzz. The outside decks were full, and and as I sat down, we're just sitting there looking around us. Um, very, very few people in this part of Greece were, were speaking any English whatsoever. A lot of the tourists were from Eastern European countries. And so we're just listening to the buzz of voices around us. So many different languages that we didn't understand. Hardly a word of English. And then, and then Bron said to me, she said, you know, if the Lord returned right now, how many people here do you think would recognize him? And I looked around, and I mean, hey, how do you tell these things? But my gut said, not many, not many. We're getting just again a little bit of a feel for the harvest. As we, as we came back, we had a stopover in Singapore as it happened. And, and uh, on the, this particular afternoon, we're waiting for our flight out. We're able to go up to, 
to one of the higher levels where there was the promise of a swimming pool. And, and uh, there, after a quick dip and cooling off, I, I stood at this big glass fence that was overlooking the various condominiums that make up the six seconds of airspace that constitutes the country of Singapore. And as I was looking out over these buildings, I just started to count them. And I was thinking, wow. And, and just in this limited, limited uh, view, I counted about 100. And then I thought, wow, if there's 100 just in that section there. What if we, what if we move that out that far, 300? And, and that's the number of buildings, many of these quite tall and so forth. And I was just thinking about the, the number of people there that uh, were resident in those buildings. And again, I asked myself the same question that Bron asked me on the ferry. If the Lord returned right now, how many people in this vast city would recognize him? And again, I, I thought to myself, I don't think many. Certainly not enough, not enough. And Jesus was commenting in his day as well that the harvest is plentiful. And that seems to indicate not just the number of people, not the sheer population that Jesus happened to be looking at at that particular time or that, that I might have had just a, a vague glimpse of on, on several occasions on this most recent trip, but also the readiness of people to be harvested for the kingdom of God. There is a suggestion here that in the heart of a man and in the heart of a woman is a deep, deep longing for God and a readiness there to hear this good news of the kingdom of God. But they do have to. They do have to hear. But Jesus goes on, and here is perhaps a slightly disturbing bit. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, years ago, I might have... I might have now buried you in statistics of various countries and how many people are yet to, yet to hear um, just about the love of Jesus Christ just for the very first time. Oswald Smith famously once said um, that it's wrong for anyone to, to hear the gospel twice until everyone has heard it at least once. It's, a, I guess, a, a question of equality. In fairness, that everybody should have the opportunity to hear about the love that God has, has for them. We could get deep, deep into that. But you know what? I, I have found over the years that it often, as you get buried in those statistics, it often leaves you more with a sense of guilt. I'm yet actually to meet a genuine believer or Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, who does not, to some extent or another, have concern for those who do not yet know. I don't think the problem is that, that somehow we're very, very cozy in our Christian beliefs and, and really have no concern that there are people who don't believe or don't know about the love of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's the problem. I don't think that's why the workers are few. So it begs the question, why are the workers few? It seemed to be the case back in Jesus' day, but of course, things were just starting out then. Thousands of years later, we have more Christians on the planet than ever before in the history of the world, and yet the workers still seem to be few. Now, why is that? I don't think, again, it's for lack of concern. I don't think it's because somehow we're a heartless bunch. So going a little bit deeper, I, I wonder whether there isn't a case or a certain extent to which we are robbed a little bit of about our conviction, our, 
our qualification to speak, to be a vigorous worker for the, for the kingdom of God. Paul, writing to the Philippians, of course, after Jesus uttered these words, of course, Paul had a great hope for the expansion of the kingdom of God, and it was, was found in his belief that every church that was founded all around the, the Roman Empire, that every church had the potential to be a shining light of the kingdom of God in that region. So writing to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, I believe Paul prays a prayer which he believes is something of a game changer. This is an astounding prayer. And, and as I was, was traveling on this, it popped up in my little travel journal and, and I, I pondered it once more. Thinking about this, this game changer. Now, the, the, the term game changer, of course, refers to, to sporting analogy. It's that moment, I guess, in a particular, a particular game or sport where it seems that it is not going so well, but as the coach um, adopts a new strategy or introduces, injects a new player into the team or the side or the game at this particular point, suddenly, like a hinge, everything changes as referred to as a game changer. I believe that, that Paul found this prayer to be something of a game changer for churches. If Christians could just get a hold of this, this would change everything when it came to their missional efforts. The prayer is longer than this. We'll have a look at it a little bit later. But look at these couple of verses, Ephesians 3, 17 to 18. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, this seems a little bit of a, an, an odd verse to inject into a a passage that we're looking at at the moment about a concern for the lost. Why all of a sudden am I talking about the love of God? Quite simply, for this reason. We have an enemy who, ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, did God really say, spends all of his time casting doubt upon the character of God. Do you not realize that every moment of every day he is whispering into your head, doubts about the character of God. Everything that you've ever believed about God, the enemy is whispering, did God really say? Did God really say? Now, if there is one important principle for you to grasp in the Christian life, would it not be God absolutely, unconditionally loves me? Well, that would be pretty fundamental, wouldn't it? So is it a surprise that the enemy is constantly whispering to you, did he really say that? Is it really unconditional? Does he really love you? What does he mean by love? What does anyone mean by love? What is love? The enemy is attacking the notion of love. The enemy is attacking your understanding or comprehension that God loves you. And so here is why I believe for Paul it is such a game changer. In fact, Paul understands that humanly speaking, in and of your own strength, you can't even get your head around this. This knowledge surpasses human understanding. By yourself, you will never grasp the love of God. You'll never understand its width, its length, its height, nor depth. You will not get your head around this. That's why he prays you are going to need the power of God to understand the love of God. 
I pray that you will have power together with all of God's people to grasp this concept of God's love for you. We have to revisit this again and again and again. You could be a Christian for one day. You could be a Christian for 100 years. You will have to rely upon the full strength of the Holy Spirit and his power day in and day out to get your head around the loving character of God. It will be under constant attack. Doubt this. And you will be disabled as a worker in the kingdom of God. How will you go about a harvesting work, harvesting souls and telling them about a God who loves them if you don't believe it yourself? Here is a, a fundamental strategy of the enemy. Doubt this and you will doubt and feel terribly unqualified for the work of the kingdom. So Paul is saying, you're going to need power. You're going to need a lot of power, all the power of heaven to help you understand the love of heaven and to know this. But if you get this, if you can understand the depth of the love of God for you, then do you know the impact of that will be this. You will be filled to the fullness of God. In other words, if you want to fully experience experience the abiding presence of Jesus Christ in your life, you need to get your head around his love. As you understand his love for you, it will be like God fills you up to overflowing. And I believe that at its heart is what evangelism is. That's what Christian witness is. It is a love that overflows. It is firstly a comprehension of the love of God that fills you so that you experience the loving and abiding presence of Christ. But then more than that, it overflows to others. Without that, you are simply a clanging symbol. Apologetics has its place. But as my wife, I think, rather cleverly says, nobody loses a debate about God, it seems, and is one to the kingdom. It does have its place. It answers important questions. But at the, day, at the end of the day, if it is without love, it is just a clinging symbol. The mission of God seems to progress as a result of a love that overflows to others, enveloping them in the, the warmth of his fatherly embrace. And so Paul says the starting point is that you understand how much you are loved. And when you do, you will be an unstoppable force. Literally. You think about it. Anytime you feel loved by someone else, doesn't it just bubble over in some way or another? Can it ever be shut in? No. When you feel, when you feel loved and when you feel the secure embrace of of somebody else's affection, then, of course, it finds expression, doesn't it? And that is a beautiful way to picture Christian witness. But we do face this bombardment of disinformation from the evil one. Did God really say, are you really loved? Is there enough love to go around? The accuser of the enemy will find and drag up all manner of things in your life that would seem to 
according to our human nature, disqualify you from such love. The truth is, how we see God impacts how we see ourselves. If you see God as stingy, guess what? You'll probably find a a rather stingy character in your own makeup. Your doubts about your father's character will cast doubts about your character. Remember, Jesus said, I have given you the glory. Oh, sorry. He said, I have given them the glory that you gave me. The glory of God has been imparted to us in Jesus Christ. But we need to understand what that glory is. We need to understand who God is and his glorious character to understand who we are in that glorious character that resides within you and I. A dim view of God dims your view of self. A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about a man is what that man thinks about God. Your theology is going to translate into, into a very, very practical understanding of who you are. And good theology is not, at the end of the day, I've said this a, a few times, what you think about God. Good theology is what God thinks about himself. And it's why it's got to be biblically based. We've got to go back to, well, what does God say about himself? And when we understand that, we understand the true nature of God and we're on the way to understanding the new nature of us. The true nature of God dictates the new nature of us. We've got to get our heads around that. And sometimes, quite frankly, we just have to go back to, if I can quote Isaiah chapter 6, getting a new and a fresh vision of God. That's where it all starts. Isaiah had a very, very difficult calling. He was going to minister to a people who, who were basically going to, a little bit Jeremiah fashion, were not going to be able ready listeners to the, to the words that God had to say. But in the midst of that, in the midst of judgment and so forth, God raises up somebody to be a messenger for him. Isaiah 6, 1 to 3, we read in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. This is how Isaiah saw him. Seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why did God inspire those words to be captured there in the book of Isaiah for us or to be imparted to us so that we could, we could have a glimpse of Isaiah's vision for just a moment and we could understand that this loving God that we worship and serve, he is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. His splendor fills the earth. This is our God. Isaiah had a had a vision so powerful of him, well, he was, he was dumbstruck. He was fearful. Uh, poor Isaiah, he kind of felt, oh, woe to me. I've seen God in all of his splendor. I'm not going to live. This is too much for a man to understand or to, to gaze upon. I'm a goner. And God says in the midst of that, I'm looking for someone. I'm looking for someone who will be my messenger. Of course, Isaiah feels unworthy, and and the game-changing moment for Isaiah is that one of the angels takes a coal from the altar of atonement and touches his lips and cleanses him, atones for his sin and makes him clean once more. The love of God touches his life, and suddenly he realizes, I'm available. 
So he says, here, here I am, <laughs> send me. God finds his man in Isaiah. We need a fresh vision of God, a, a vision of, 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 of God that transcends our own sense of unworthiness, the fact that who are we? Woe is me. I, you know, we are not up to such a task, but praise God, the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ, is able to cleanse us of all sin. There's the love of God demonstrated through Christ, equipping us and qualifying us for the task so that when he says, who will I send? We can suddenly realize I've been touched by the love of God. <laughs> send me. Have you been touched by the love of God? There is your qualification. You know, God loves to use weakness. It seems that in God's economy, willingness trumps weakness every time. You might feel for some reason or another, oh, I, 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 I know I'm loved by God, but you don't understand. I, 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 I got this thing, and it, it kind of means that I'm not... I'm not the sharpest tool in the box. It kind of means I'm a bit of a blunt instrument. When it comes to having an impact for the kingdom, there are others. There are others. Oh, they're so good at it. Oh, I watched them. Bless them. I don't think it's me. No. If you're willing, do you know what? God loves to use you. Uh, Paul gives us a, a hint of this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, you may be familiar with this, but, but Paul had what he simply called a thorn in his flesh. We'll never know what it is. And I'm kind of glad about that because it could be the thorn that you think is in your flesh, that thing that, that kind of it, it, it pricks, it hurts, and it nags at you again and again and again, and it just won't go away. Whatever that is for you, Paul had that. So much so that, that Paul's thinking, I'm useless unless this gets taken away. God, on three occasions, he pleads with God to take it away from him, and God replies, uh-uh, no, here's the thing, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, says Paul, about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. God loves to use our weaknesses. Uh, when we're at Operation Joshua, in the evenings we'd have these meetings and they're, they're fantastic. One of my highlights, to be quite honest. You've been out on the road all day and you come back and you're, you're tired and, and, you know, hot and sweaty. And if you've got time, you shower. If you haven't, you just turn up at these meetings. And, um, and they were very, very special times of worship and meeting around God's word. The different speakers every night, and I believe that, that many of you were, were praying for me. I I was speaking on the last night, but one of my favorite evenings was uh, a dear brother, Jonathan Zekaru. He's an American, Greek-American. He was speaking. Now, he could be a stand-up comedian. You know, he, he actually just ran for the Senate in California um, and uh, got, got narrowly, narrowly beaten. But um, um, he is a funny man. And uh, he, um, he got up to speak, and I always enjoy listening to him. And, uh, and, and as usual, he was, he was hilarious. And he doesn't even mean to be. You know, it's not a show or a performance. God has just um, uh, created him funny. 
And uh, he said, dear brother, he, he rang me actually on my last day in Greece, impersonating a Greek policeman. And um, <laughs> just his sense of humor. But on this particular, particular night, um, he was speaking. And after he had everybody in stitches, uh, he, he kind of just was quiet for a moment. And he said, do you, do you know, um, God's asked me to do something which I, I, I find particularly difficult. He said, I, I really feel God impressing upon me tonight that I'm to read the sermon. And he said, and, and Jonathan, if you know him, is very extemporaneous, meaning in the moment. Um, and uh, he said, the reason why it's difficult for me is I'm actually dyslexic. And he said, wasn't diagnosed for a long, long time at school. But, but I, 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 when I do my exegesis, I have to work about three times harder than anyone else. And he said, reading my sermon, it, 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 takes, it, it, it takes so much out of me to do it that I, that I really feel very, very weak. But this is what God's asked me to do. So putting aside his natural self and, and just being obedient to the Lord, he starts to read his sermon. And, and I've got to say, to be quite honest, it was, you know, just as you listened to him and as he read it, he, he didn't struggle with the pronunciation so, so much, but, he, but it was very dry compared to perhaps his normal, you know, rather vivacious or gregarious delivery. But the Spirit of God moved in a powerful way. He was modeling his, his message, which was quite simply this. God loves to use your weakness for his purposes. He loves by his grace to take your weakness and turn it into his strength. So whatever weakness you feel might actually disqualify you from being used of God. Here's a bit of an upside-down kingdom principle. God longs to use that very thing miraculously for his purposes. And his strength is, is made perfect in that weakness. His power shining forth. You no longer have to be defined, as it were, by your darkest moment. You can now be defined by God's brightest moment, which is that moment that he raises his brand new life in you and brings about his power in your life in such a way that all of the weaknesses that you may have formerly identified with are now brought to naught. It seems that the joy of creation, and, and imagine that, God creating things, um, Let's take a zebra and stretch the head up like this and call it a giraffe. I mean, how much fun would that be? Huh? Huh? Like plasticine. Um, think about it. Flinging stars into space. Stay. A little to the left. You know, just at, at his word, his very command, he brings all things into creation. Imagine the joy of that. And yet it seems that that joy is and can be surpassed. By another joy, the joy of redemption, when something which is lost gets found. Jesus gives us three stories to illustrate the point, the story of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And in each case, when that which is lost is found, 
return to its owner. The joy in heaven is immense, insurpassable. So it seems that the joy of redemption transcends even the joy of creation as God finds again something that belonged to him. God loves to use your weaknesses. He loves to use my weaknesses. I don't know, maybe life hasn't been particularly tough for you up to this point. Wait a minute. Because at some point it comes to all humanity, trust me. Peter Maiden, the former international director of OOM, said, Life was really cruisy for me until I turned 60. At some point, pain, suffering, difficulty, it, it, it will catch up with you. It will weaken you. It will make you feel totally disqualified for service. It will sap any vigor from kingdom work and laboring in the harvest that you might formerly have had. Um, you're familiar, no doubt, with a particular verse, this verse in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, no temptation has come to you except that which is common to man. And got you. Let me read it to you in the message realizing that the word for temptation can also be translated trial or test. Eugene Peterson translates it this way, no test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Let me read that to you again. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. He loves to use your weakness. He loves to display his strength through your weakness. There is no disqualification for being a vigorous worker in God's harvest field. It seems that, that suffering uh, thins the barrier between the now and the not yet. Um, it's a little bit like um, Demister, our your rear window demister. You're getting in the car these, these mornings and it's cold and your breath soon fogs up the, the interior of the car and so you start the car and you, you put the demister on. A little bit of a, a charge is sent through, a, through a, heating, a heating coil on the back of your window and slowly it demists and, and that, that fog is, is, you know, dissipates and, and you can see not, not only, you know, the interior of your car now, but you can see beyond that to the world outside. Well, it seems that suffering does the same thing. It seems to clear the view between this world and the world beyond it. God loves to use weakness. He loves to use pain. He loves to use suffering. He loves to use whatever trial or challenge or temptation that you're currently facing. He loves to use that to thin the barrier, to make clear what the world beyond looks like. 
And as you persevere in that suffering, in those difficulties, in those challenges, beyond the limits that, that you might ordinarily think might constrain you, others look on and see the power of God demonstrated in a way they would never have otherwise seen it. Oh, yes, God sometimes loves to, to do the miraculous and, and heal a person, by all means. But sometimes he loves to do the miraculous and sustain a person through terrible and tragic illness. And perhaps the latter is the greater miracle than the former and speaks more loudly to the power of God that sustains us. The last verse that I want to share with you is 2 Corinthians 9.8. And this was the theme for our Operation Joshua. Talking about the grace of God, the same word there used in the English here, translated bless, as God is, extends his grace to you or is able to bless you abundantly as you have received an abundance of grace, some translations will say. Even as God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, God has extended his grace to you. Now abound in good works for God. As grace has abounded to you, now let your works abound for God. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. My belief is not because we just don't care, but we are under a continuous bombardment of disinformation that makes us feel like we're not, we're not worthy. Who are we to share the good news about the love of God with somebody else, given our weakness, given our situation, given whatever it might be that you're facing right now? You ask yourself, who am I? <laughs> There's got to be other harvesters. Champions of the faith. Capital E evangelists. No, that can't be me, huh? Who am I to talk about the love of God? You're a child of God. Loved by God. Totally qualified, despite your weakness, to testify to his loving heart. That's who you are. And he longs to fill, fill you once more with a love that overflows, to remind you by the power of his spirit. Honestly, not the convincing or persuasion of a man. I don't think I ever could do it. I could, I could stand up here and shout it, repeat it, maybe even sing it. God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. But without the ministry of his Holy Spirit to speak that into your heart, it could only fall on deaf ears. So Paul prays. His game-changing prayer. He prays that by the power of God's Spirit, it's the only way this can happen, by the power of God's Spirit, you would get it. You would get it. 
It would be like you would be dropped in an ocean of love and you would get it. You would suddenly understand the breadth of his love, the length of his love, the height and the depth of his love. You would get it. But it has to be the work of his spirit. Would you like to experience that again tonight? Would you like to do that? Would you like to trust God to speak into your heart a message that only he can speak? Again, I, 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 can't, I can't persuade you of this. But if you'll receive it, if you have ears to listen to the King of kings and the Lord of lords about his love for you, his fatherly love for you, he can do something that no person on earth could ever do. So I invite you to stand with me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out that prayer from Ephesians. I'm going to read it out and, as it were, pray it over you. And I invite you to, to receive this. And maybe it'll be a quiet work in your heart. Maybe you'd like to just open up your, your arms and your hands to him. And it's an expression of, I want to receive it. But I invite you tonight to receive once more these precious words, this prayer from God, your loving Heavenly Father, to let these words permeate your being. And as I read this, I pray that He will, as I say, as it were, drop you into His ocean of love that you might find yourself overflowing with love and become once more a joyous worker in his harvest field. Let me pray this. Like Paul, I'm going to kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I know it's hard to imagine, but Paul goes on. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according 
to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.